Ghost Breakers Incorporated. You make them, we shake them. Bob Hope speaking. Yes, Paulette Goddard's a partner in this firm. What? You want me to send her around? <laughs> Listen, if I could tell Paulette what to do, I wouldn't send her to your house. Sucker. You know, I never knew there were so many ghosts roaming around loose until Paulette and I got into the Ghost Breakers. Believe me, the cat in the canary was a pink tea compared to this picture. It all starts on one terrible night. Basil Rathbone must be giving a party. That's the night that Paulette inherits a ghostly ancient castle off the ghost, I mean the coast of Cuba. The place is filled with mummies and spooks that walk at midnight. There are murders and death warnings planned to frighten Paulette and me, but we ain't frightened. I'll match you to see who faints first. Miss Carter's voice. Ah, that's what they're trying to make us believe. such good ghost breakers is that we don't believe in ghosts. <laughs> or do I? Yes, it is I, Count Ross May, back from the gray. And welcome to my ancient castle, Reitman for the job. Some say this is where evil rituals were once performed. Rituals to cover the filmography of director Ivan Reitman. Ooh, scary stuff. But what happened, you may ask? Um, hmm. Yeah, let's cut out the shtick for now. So when I last spoke to you, my plan was to build up a new batch of episodes. My plan actually was to do a big return this October with a look at some of Ivan's colleagues, episodes on heavy metal and Ghostbusters, and finish off with this Halloween special. But the best laid plans, everyone. What happened is my father went through a major health scare, and he nearly died. In order to help him and my mom out, that took up about all of my free time. But my dad is still with us. He's recovering. He just got home recently after months in hospital, and he's expected to mostly recover his health and mobility. I'm not saying this for any sympathy, but I just want to remind all of you that, hey, this is a part of life, and you need to be ready for when major unexpected things happen to your loved ones or even yourself. My dad's being taken care of, my whole extended family is doing well, but I just did not have the time to do this podcast like I had planned. So instead of a grand comeback, this October I could only just squeak in this Halloween special. Heh, <laughs> I'll even be more honest. I thought I might have time to cover heavy metal as well, but then for almost all of September and October I developed a lung infection. Like, the most perfect thing to prevent me from recording on mic. Ha, <laughs> so anyways, Reitman for the Job will definitely be back for a holiday special towards the end of this year. 
In any case, thanks for listening. And if I'm doing a run of podcasts and suddenly episodes just stop for several months, you can know that I'm just taking time to build up a new batch. On to happier things. Yes, happy Halloween, everyone. I thought it would be fun to explore one of the ghost-busting, ghost-smashing, ghost-crashing, Abbott and Costello-meeting kind of movies that inspired Dan Aykroyd. And I've picked out one of the higher-profile ones, The Ghost Breakers from 1940, starring Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard. Before we get to it, let's answer some burning questions. Jack O.L. asks, Are you a fan of Halloween? Heh, <laughs> what if I said no? There's got to be one Ghostbuster fan like that, right? Oh, I love Ghostbusters, but I just hate Halloween. It sucks. Heh, <laughs> there's got to be one person like that somewhere. But yes, I really like Halloween, and I especially loved it as a kid. And this will be no surprise, I dressed as a Ghostbuster more than anything else. Not every Halloween. I'd be a witch and Super Mario and a really crummy Darth Vader with a floppy mask, but I was a Ghostbuster with my Kenner Proton Pack for maybe three or four Halloweens. And I never had any sort of jumpsuit as a kid, but that didn't matter. A traditional Saskatchewan Halloween always had snow. It was too bad. My sister always wanted to be a ballerina, but it was too cold, so she'd have to go trick-or-treating with her winter gear on, and she was a ballerina underneath. I'm sure a lot of Canadians can relate to that. Also part of my October traditions. A few Halloween specials. I like It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and the Garfield Halloween cartoon. I also always wanted to see the real Ghostbusters Halloween episodes, and I was sad into the mid-90s when they were gone. And of course I might watch actual horror movies now. Halloween wasn't my favorite day of the year, that is still Christmas, but Halloween was my second favorite. Thanksgiving is kind of a lesser Christmas, just with a meal, and Easter is very nice, and I actually like the whole pastel, springtime aesthetic, but it was too similar in concept to Christmas, while Halloween was something very different. Speaking of different holidays, well, setting religion aside for a moment, so just in a secular sense, I know a lot of people today really emphasize how Christmas is especially magical for kids. It can be special, and I mean stressful too, for adults, but in the secular sense, I think a lot of people point out how Christmas should be owned by kids more than adults. You know, adults have cynicism when a three-year-old does not. A three-year-old just enjoys the lights and the idea of Santa Claus completely. At least, I sure hope there isn't a cynical three-year-old out there. Here's my thinking. Even more than Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa, I really feel Halloween is a day for kids. Dressing up and trick-or-treating, I've always felt Halloween is for kids even more than the winter holidays. And I know some of you out there are going to disagree with me. I never realized how into Halloween some adults got, throwing a party or absolutely needing to watch certain horror movies, having elaborate scary decorations. I can't really get into that mode of thought. Even when I was in college, I mean, I went out around Halloween to bars, I just wore a Ghostbusters t-shirt, naturally, but I saw that as sort of an excuse to go out with a Halloween theme, and not necessarily a special event the way Christmas was. Even as a young adult, I figured Halloween should be geared towards kids, and now as a dad, that's entirely my focus. I figure Halloween is all about them getting dressed up and trick-or-treating, and my wife and I handing out treats. We do a bit of light decorating too, but it's all for the sake of our children. They get to draw faces on the jack-o'-lantern, and I carve them up and all that good stuff. I always wear a Ghostbusters shirt on Halloween as well, and if one of my kids is dressed as a Ghostbuster, I might be a Ghostbuster too, but that's the extent of my costumes. That's pretty fun, because my old Kenner Proton Pack fits them right now. It's cute, and family history repeating itself. Also, to all the other parents out there, most of you are pretty good about this, but don't make your kid be a Ghostbuster every year. I know, I know, you're probably good about this, so let them be whatever they want as well. They'll probably be like us and be a Ghostbuster every once in a while. 
Speaking of which, it's kind of interesting that you can have an entirely Ghostbusters-themed Halloween now. There are candy bowls, Slimer and no ghost lights, Ghostbuster signs, which I know we all love Ghostbusters, but maybe we should consider not making everything themed about that, right? Don't make it so commercial, man. Remember to keep the hallow in Halloween. Keep the spirit alive and sacrifice someone inside a burning wicker man. I kid, I kid. I know the wicker man isn't set at Halloween. So yeah, that's my attitude towards Halloween. If you're way more into it, you need to have parties and motion sensor grim reapers. More power to you. Spirit of Halloween, I mean the store, Spirit of Halloween, has those big motion sensor terror dogs right now, and they look very cool, but I'll tell you, I'm not getting those guys. They're too big and ugly and scary. I know I'm a pretty lame dad when it comes to Halloween. My kids are young, and I like to keep things cute for them, and I can't see myself making Halloween the biggest thing. No bloody skeleton robots at our place. Jack's next question is, what do you hand out to trick-or-treaters? We hand out wagon wheels. I think they seem kind of special, even though you might have noticed they really have shrunk. It's not just our imaginations from being kids. They really have made wagon wheels smaller in recent years. But I think they're good, and they're not free for kids with allergies. Also, being a comic book writer, did you know that you can buy packs of mini comic books from comic book shops? Your nearest one might have them in October. They come in these bags of like 25 or 30, so I usually hand out Archie Halloween comics in addition to treats. I've had a few kids surprised by that, so that's nice. The Ghostbreakers debuted in June of 1940. I wonder if anything interesting was happening back then. Whoo, there's way too much war news here that I'm able to cover. A few things that struck me include the Dunkirk evacuation, a.k.a. Operation Dynamo, was completed on June 4th. Its completion prompted Prime Minister Winston Churchill to deliver one of his finest speeches to the House of Commons, We Shall Fight on the Beaches. Oh hey, here's some fun comic news. Will Eisner's hero The Spirit debuted in newspaper supplements on June 2nd. The Spirit was newspapers trying to cash in on this superhero craze. The Spirit is just a guy, a detective, and the fact that he wears a mask and has a secret identity is largely inconsequential to the plot. It's just a lot of quality, noirish, humorous stories with some of the best art of the 40s by Will Eisner. The Spirit had a 2008 movie and various revamps at companies. He's been paired with Batman over at DC a lot, but he's been largely forgotten by the public today despite the fact that more adults read his comics back in the day than Superman or Batman. In fact, that might be his problem. Superman and Batman mostly had kids for fans, while readers of the Spirit were more adults. I guess a lot of Spirit readers died off without passing their fandom on, while kids who loved Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman grew up and their kids became the next generation of fans, the Silver Age. Another very important event, Daisy Duck debuts in the Disney cartoon Mr. Duck Steps Out on June 7th. Alright, here's our station break. Who's got the Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. 
So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. I'll let you know right now, this movie is not actually about setting up a Ghostbreakers or Ghostbusters type company, though Bob Hope does joke about it in the middle of the film. It's interesting to me that calling a ghost-catching service on the telephone features so prominently in a lot of these. In the trailer here for Ghostbreakers, in the movie and theme song for Ghostbusters, even the Disney cartoon Lonesome Ghosts, the one where Mickey, Donald, and Goofy are ghost exterminators, features that idea. Sometimes we overlook the obvious, but I think the central joke of Ghostbusters is that it's inherently funny for the company to exist. The supernatural should be something, well, super something extraordinary, so making it a mundane business, one where you need to call them up, like you need pests killed or your plumbing fixed, that's the central joke to Ghostbusters, so it's interesting the trailer to this movie even features that idea, though that's not what Ghostbreakers is really all about. So let's get to it. It's time for The Ghostbreakers from June 1940, directed by George Marshall. George Marshall directed, I kid you not, hundreds of movies and then TV episodes. The Ghostbreakers stars Bob Hope, and if you don't know who Bob Hope is, ask your grandparents, kid. And Paulette Goddard. Goddard was a major star, and over her life, married four times. Wedged in the middle there, her husbands were Charlie Chaplin and Burgess Meredith. And her fourth husband was Eric Remark, the author of All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, that's neat. Since my whole point of talking about the Ghostbreakers is to really explain the pedigree of Ghostbusters in 84, we better get into all the history of this. It's not complicated, but there's just lots of things to talk about. The movie is based on a stage play written by Paul Dickey and Charles Goddard. That's funny. The playwright Charles Goddard shares the same name with star Paulette Goddard, but I don't believe they were related. The play, The Ghostbreaker, debuted on Broadway at the Lyceum Theatre in March of 1913 and ran for 72 performances. A lot of plays would be mined as content for movies over in Hollywood which I always find ironic, considering this starts back when the films were still silent, so you had to strip away almost all the dialogue that really was the point of a play. But yes, Paramount moved fast and turned it into a film, The Ghostbreaker, in December of 1914. It was directed by Cecil B. DeMille and Oscar Apfel, and the film doesn't seem to exist today. It's lost to time. The original playwrights, Dickie and Goddard, even turned the story into a novel in 1915 to capitalize on the movie. Then we jump all the way to 1922. Doesn't seem that big of a jump, really. And Paramount remade the movie, again as a silent film, and once again, all copies of it are lost. So it's 1940 now. Bob Hope is one of the biggest celebrities around, and Paulette Goddard is famous. So if you're executives at Paramount, it might be time to dust off that old plot again, and this time do it with sound. So all told, The Ghostbreaker has been a play, a novel based on the play, two silent movies, and now a talkie movie in 1940. Oh, and it won't end there. In 1953, there's a Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis movie called Scared Stiff that's just this plot again. So all told, this movie has been done four times. Jesus, 2019 now. It's about time Paramount did this a fifth time. Oh, I've mentioned the original playwrights, but I better mention the movie screenwriter, Walter DeLeon. See, the 1922 version of The Ghostbreaker, that's the second movie, was written by him. Nearly 20 years later, and Paramount had DeLeon do this version. But that's not all. Because of his 1940 script, he's also credited as the co-writer on the 1953 film Scared Stiff, even though he had been dead for years at that point. I mean, unless he ghost-wrote it. <laughs> so that's the lineage of The Ghostbreaker, 
or for our 1940 version, the Ghost Breakers plural. But there's a whole other angle we need to cover here. See, part of what the Ghost Breakers with Hope and Goddard is, it's a spiritual sequel. Uh, spiritual. I keep doing this. Mm -hmm. The Ghost Breakers is a spiritual sequel to a movie called The Cat and the Canary. The Cat and the Canary and The Ghost Breakers are really very similar. In The Cat and the Canary, a woman is set to inherit a Louisiana mansion and fortune, so some competitors try to frighten her away with talk of a homicidal maniac, and there are secret doors in the mansion they try to use to frighten her. In The Ghost Breakers, a woman inherits a mansion in Cuba, and parties try to scare her away from it with talk of ghosts and zombies. In broad terms, they're basically the same plot. The Cat and the Canary also began as a stage play, written by John Willard in 1922. And get this, it's been filmed six times, including in Spain and Sweden. But here's what matters to us. In 1939, The Cat and the Canary was done starring Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard, and it was a big success for Paramount. They didn't have a sequel in the works, but they did have the very similar plot of the Ghostbreakers just laying around. Story-wise, the only difference is that instead of Goddard fearing she's going crazy and that a murderer named the cat will come to kill her, now she and Bob Hope are afraid of ghosts and a zombie. And there you have it. The Ghostbreakers comes from a line of movies that began with a play, and the very reason it exists is because it's this pseudo-sequel to a very similar story called The Cat and the Canary. I've had people tell me they appreciate how thorough I am on this podcast. Thanks, everyone. And ordinarily, I like to cover all my bases, but I simply don't have the time and energy to watch Cat and the Canary or Scared Stiff, and I certainly don't have time to read the Ghostbreakers novel, which you can buy online. I actually listened to short snippets of a reading of that book, and it was pretty stilted, old-timey stuff to me. Remember, that's based on a 1915 novel. And while I like a lot of old stories and media, that book was a step too far for me. Pardon me, am I protruding? Lovely view, isn't it? Mr. Lawrence, I want you to meet Mr. Parada. He's just been telling me about the castle I've inherited. How do you do? Well, I feel as though I know you. I've heard so much. You've been in Havana before? No, first trip. Pleasure trip? Not exactly. Are you interested in tobacco plantation? No. Sugar industry? Look, I'll save you a lot of time. I'm a ghost breaker. A what? Well, you've heard of trust breakers and home breakers. I'm a ghost breaker. I take family skeletons out of the closet and dust them off. I explain mysteries that people don't want to explain. I make a nice living, too, chasing ghosts of the past, if you'll pardon the poetic reference. It's very interesting. Are you the one who is advising Miss Carter not to sell her castle? No, my advice is to keep the castle and sell the ghosts. I myself have heard of only one ghost, the spirit of Don Santiago. Does he appear nightly or just Sundays and holidays? I never saw it. But I've known several people who have. Your uncle. Your mother's brother was the last one. What did he tell you about it? Nothing. He was dead. Dead? He was lying at the foot of the staircase. His eyes were staring, mad. His face a mask of terror. Our story begins on a dark and stormy night in New York City. Actually, showing the city skyscrapers, it's not all that different from scenes of darkness and animated lightning and Ghostbusters. Bob Hope plays radio announcer Larry Lawrence. So, Lawrence, Lawrence. He says his folks had no imagination. 
Anyway, Larry has a ridiculous job, and something we can safely bet was written for this movie and not for the original play. You know gossip columnists and websites? Things today like TMZ that will report if celebrity couples are splitting up, who's cheating on whom, or maybe more salacious things like drug use? Okay, think of that, but now imagine a radio announcer saying all this juicy gossip about known gangsters around town. Like, newsflash everyone! I've got a hot tip that Chicago crime lord Al Capone has a new lady friend, and she's giving him syphilis. Try not to scratch that itch in the wrong places, Al. That's some genuine old news for all of you, by the way. But wouldn't it be weird for that to be the show? Who the hell would be foolish enough to make a program like that? Even assuming you're not killed in the first week, you're probably going to be sued for defamation. And then the gangsters will probably kill you next week anyway. It's a silly idea, but then it's just an easy setup to later get Bob Hope's character Larry out of the country. So there's a thunderstorm happening, and the lights go out. Bob Hope says, Basil Rathbone must be giving a party. We usually remember Basil Rathbone today for playing Sherlock Holmes in film, but at the time, Rathbone had only played Holmes twice. In 1940, he was even more famous for playing villains, like in The Mark of Zorro, The Black Cat, The Mad Doctor, and plenty more. I mean, he's Dr. Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein, where he's not really the villain, but that's kind of the association Hope is making here with his joke during a thunderstorm. Oh, and here's something I noticed. Next to Larry's mirror and fireplace is a portrait of an empress. It looks like Dowager Empress Zixi, the last woman to rule China and the person who appointed the last emperor. It's kind of a weird thing to own, but then it used to be even more in vogue for Westerners to just own Chinese or Japanese art. Not that you can't do that today, but a portrait of a dead empress is pretty weird. And here we go. We meet Larry's valet, Alex, played by actor Willie Best. He's in a heck of a lot of movies. In fact, he might be in more movies even than Bob Hope, and that's really saying something. Though Willie Best was always playing minor roles. And you can see this coming if you're watching the movie with me. Willie Best was black, and he was almost always cast as servants of some kind. Chauffeurs and valets and elevator operators, porters at train stations and the like. He was definitely used more leaning towards a minstrel-type character, a comic relief with a stereotyped speech. Here's a quote I found attributed to him. Quote, I often think about these roles I have to play. Most of them are pretty broad. Sometimes I tell the director and he cuts out the real bad parts. But what's an actor going to do? Either you do it or you get out. End quote. Oh, but also, Bob Hope had really complimentary things to say about Best, and once called him the finest actor I knew. But then, uh... Candles get blown out at one point and Larry gets scared, and he can't find Alex in the dark. He says, you look like a blackout in a blackout and he says he'll have to paint him white in order to see him. No, this movie. Okay, okay, let's move on, because what can we even do about stuff like that now? Larry meets his inside man with the gangsters, Raspy, who gives him some hot tips on mob bosses. Again, what a weird, dangerous premise for a radio show. Despite the lightning and blackout, Larry's assured the radio station is still broadcasting, and he goes off to do his show. We cut to a hotel. Working girl Mary Carter, played by Paulette Goddard, is informed about what she's set to inherit, Black Island, off the coast of Cuba, and on it, Castle Maldito. Maldito, Maldito. If we look up some Spanish, Maldito means damned. So, Castle Damned. I love it. And it's implied that's definitely not a nickname. Maldito is its real name, spoken by the Cuban solicitor transferring ownership. So yes, an ancestor of Mary Carter built Castle Maldito, and now she owns the island and the castle. I love it that the movie can't even be bothered here to explain if someone died for this to happen. Did a Cuban aunt of hers pass away? 
Was it sitting empty for decades? The movie doesn't care about trifling details like that. What we do learn is that Castle Maldito is haunted, and people don't last long there. There's also some intrigue. The Cuban solicitor, Parada, offers to buy the island and castle for 50,000 American dollars. I looked it up, technology is great like this, but I looked it up, and 50,000 in 1940 cash is just shy of a million dollars today. I think Parada overplays his hand, though, because now Mary is intrigued why the castle is worth so much. Her suspicion is quickly confirmed when another Cuban man, Medeiros, calls her from the hotel lobby and tells her not to trust Parada. Mary takes the property and plans on sailing to Cuba that night, which is funny considering there's supposed to be a violent storm going on. Mary undresses and listens to Larry's report on the underworld. No wonder Paulette Goddard was married four times. I bet she would have been married more except the line got too long. Larry's program is sponsored by Cronin Coffee. Cronin is an Irish word and an Irish surname, so I guess that's where the name's coming from. Larry lists off all the harmful things that aren't in the coffee, to the point where he accidentally says there's nothing in it at all. There's a few funny jokes around here. Then he gets to the heart of the matter. Mob boss Frenchy Duval's newest enterprise isn't gambling, or fencing, stolen goods, or nothing. It's baby laundries. You know, cleaning cloth diapers. Huh. I never knew there were laundries that used to specialize like that, but... Hey, I guess? What do I know about laundry services back in 1940? Anyways, this is all a joke in the movie, of course. Over at Frenchy's place, his guys start giving him the eye when they hear he's cornered the market on diaper laundries all over New York. Frenchy immediately calls the radio station and tells Larry to meet at his hotel. Of course, that's the same hotel Mary Carter is staying at. Larry knows he's in trouble now, so it's odd he decides to go. Odd he decides to ever do this stupid gangster-type show, but whatever, it's a movie. Larry has Alex drive him over to the hotel, and hey, the storm has passed and isn't mentioned again. Alex proves he's smarter, or at least he's more up on things, and just goes ahead and gives Larry a handgun when he learns Larry is going up to visit Frenchie Duvall. Larry goes up to Frenchie's floor, and here's where things start to get farcical. Parada, the Cuban solicitor, pops out of his room and startles Larry. Every time someone turns a corner or exits their room, it scares Larry and he in turn surprises some of them, and everyone suspiciously has their hands hidden in their jackets like they're all holding guns, so that's a lot of fun. At one point, Larry says to himself, Courage, Camille. That's from Alexander Dumas's story, Camille. Psst, if you don't know who Alexander Dumas is, he also wrote The Three Musketeers. Okay, but Courage, Camille comes from his love story, Camille. The hero, Armand Duval, says it to his dying lover, Camille. It's been filmed so many times, way more than The Ghostbreaker, if you can believe it. But what Bob Hope is doing here is probably making a joke and having people recall the movie from 1936, starring Greta Garbo. It's just, well, it's a 1940 equivalent of a Family Guy joke, making a reference to something else people are familiar with. There are two things that make this joke kind of clever, though. First, Camille died, so Larry play-acting this out to himself is ironic because courage didn't help Camille at all. Secondly, and I think this is definitely the kind of joke a screenwriter would enjoy, Larry is going to face Frenchie Duval, and the character who said Courage Camille is named Armand Duval. I don't even think that's something audiences are expected to catch, because this is just a short joke. I think it's an in-joke that made the screenwriter Walter DeLeon chuckle to himself. And a heads up, that joke right there is probably the wittiest thing in the whole film. It's all downhill from here, folks. So men are walking around the hotel hallway, all suspiciously keeping their hands inside their trench coats. Medeiros, the man who warned Mary Carter over the phone, confronts Parada outside his bedroom door. 
He's pretty stupid, really, pulling a gun when he wasn't ready and then Parada shoots and kills Medeiros. The gunshot startles Larry in the hallway, who thinks he's being shot at by Frenchie's men, so he closes his eyes, fires his gun, and accidentally shoots out a light. When he opens his eyes, Larry sees the body of Medeiros on the floor, so this is the darkly humorous setup. Larry thinks he has killed a man in self-defense, not realizing the actual murder had nothing to do with him. Mary Carter and the other guests stupidly open their doors to see what's going on. Let me tell you, if you hear gunshots outside your door, don't do this. Larry is also dumb and stupidly still has his gun out, so he uses that to force Mary to let him into her room. He shakes like a leaf and they start sharing witty banter, so the whole idea that he's coercing her with a threat of violence is comically undercut. She also believes him immediately that he accidentally shot someone and isn't a bad guy. It's pretty unrealistic how quickly she comes to his side, but that's just how you have to do this scene without it being frightening. Just work around the tension of threatening her with a gun entirely. The police start searching the rooms. Mary tells Larry to hide under her bed, but unbeknownst to her, he hides in her steamer trunk instead. This ends up saving Larry as a hotel porter comes to take her trunk away, but now he's locked inside it. Alex comes up to meet Mary, and she tells him to look for the trunk with her initials at the docks. So Alex goes to the docks and starts calling out for Larry where all the trunks are waiting to be loaded. A cop comes by and sees what's up, and Alex gives the excuse that he used to be a porter, which isn't really an excuse at all for why he's messing around with the trunks. It's definitely a joke on some of Willie Best's previous roles, where he played a porter before. Alex finds the trunk with Larry in it, and there's a kind of funny bit where a drunk man catches Alex and an unseen Larry talking to each other, and he thinks it's the world's best ventriloquist act. Mary also shows up, but she hasn't found her keys yet, so the trunk gets carried up into her room on the ship, all the while the big headline in newspapers is about the hotel murder and the suspect on the run. The trunk is finally opened in Mary's room on the ship, and there's some physical comedy with how Larry can't stand up straight again. Parada shows up at Mary Carter's room, being all sinister, saying that he's decided to go home to Cuba, which wouldn't have been suspicious if he had just told her of that hours ago, but now of course it looks like he's hounding her. Alex also finds Larry and shows him a newspaper, and points out that the caliber of bullet taken out of the dead man at the hotel doesn't match the gun Alex gave Larry. I've never known a newspaper to report that precise a detail on a murder case, but whatever, Larry knows he didn't kill anyone now. He also knows that Parada is trying to scare Mary away from Black Island, so now that they're stuck on board, Larry is determined to help her. Parada and Mary discuss the castle and the ghosts out on deck, and Larry comes around to assist, and it's kind of cute where he says he's a ghostbreaker. It's the only time in the movie that touches on the idea that the leads would have a business fighting ghosts, which is really a gag and not even actually what happens in this movie. As soon as Parada leaves, someone tries to drop something heavy on Mary from an upper level, so it's clear someone's out to get her. The two go to Mary's room, and when Larry notices that she's depressed, contemplating the dangerous situation she's in, he turns on the radio, says they're at a snooty party, and asks her to dance. The jokes are mostly lame here, just random rather than witty, but he puts a coin on his face to be a monocle, and it's kind of a sweet scene. It has nothing to do with the plot, and you can tell that they want to get some more vaudeville stuff in here. Mary asks, who taught you to dance? And he says, Sally Rand. Sally Rand was a famous burlesque dancer, especially in the 20s and 30s. She wasn't famous for dancing with partners, so him saying this is a good joke. Actually, if you want to know, Sally Rand did not invent the fan dance, but she's really the person who made it famous. She would also do things like dance behind a screen, so you'd just see her in silhouette. Her whole deal was that she was never actually naked, but she'd get audiences as excited as possible thinking that she was. 
It's a clever bit of psychology there. By doing that, she made herself more famous than actual strippers. And here it's an okay joke that Larry says Sally Rand taught him to dance. Uh, then their dance ends with Larry making a joke that he's native, and he's going to break into a racist imitation of a native dance. Gah. Every time you sort of enjoy this movie, it reminds you that it's from 1940. Well, we cut to arriving in Cuba. The actors are on a ship set, and I love this old special effects trick. Before green screens, they just project an image up on a screen and say, Hey, we're entering Havana. When you get to the 60s or 70s, this trick is pretty obvious, but on old black and white films, it can be kind of convincing. They sail past Morro Castle, the old fortress at the bay. Larry says it was completed in 1597. He also talks about the history of Havana with pirates and slave trading, and he says it would have made for a good film by Cecil B. DeMille. Okay, surface level. That joke is that DeMille was famous for directing epics. His two versions of the Ten Commandments are especially remembered today. It's also an in-joke because DeMille co-directed the original, the 1914 version, of The Ghostbreaker. Bob Hope would have also known Cecil B. DeMille personally, by the way. I don't know if they were good friends by 1940, but years later you can see photos of them together at social events, at birthday parties, and the like. Before reaching shore, Mary goes back to her room to find a knife with a voodoo trinket stuck on her door. She also immediately meets Jeff Montgomery, an American living in Cuba. And she immediately trusts this guy, which isn't the brightest thing when her life is being threatened right now. Montgomery is a handsome young guy played by Richard Carlson. You know me, I like to talk about every little thing an actor's done, but Richard Carlson's career is just a lot of stuff I've never heard of. He's kind of a Troy McClure type in that way. But he's Dr. David Reed in Creature from the Black Lagoon. So here's Richard Carlson 14 years before that movie. So this guy he's playing, Jeff Montgomery, identifies the charm pin to Mary's door as a voodoo uanga. That's O-U-A-N-G-A. -A, uanga. And it's a real thing. Montgomery claims that there can be good or bad uanga charms. If you look for pictures of them online, they usually look like little bags, or sometimes dolls with the bottom acting as both a bag and a little dress. They get confused a lot with voodoo dolls online, and I don't know if they can be the one and the same thing, or if voodoo dolls are a type of uanga, or what. In any case, when you have a little thing pinned to a knife by your door, that's definitely meant for bad luck. Oh, and we're about to get into more voodoo in this movie. I can make an educated guess that this voodoo content wasn't in the play or earlier films, just based on certain characters not being included in those versions. But also, I can tell this film production was inspired by other, more recent films. In 1936, there's the movie Uwanga, set in Haiti. It's about a mixed woman with powers getting mad that her lover is going to marry a white woman, so she starts commanding zombies. You can see it online, and it's dreadful stuff. Really low production values. And I can also tell the idea of the movie Uwanga is that you're supposed to be titillated at the thought of being with a woman who isn't white. But watch out, because that woman will want revenge and has mysterious powers. Okay, my point, my point. That movie is just awful. But it must have inspired some people at this production who said, Hey, incorporate voodoo, zombies, and this Uwanga thing into Ghostbreakers. So that's what's going on. Man, this movie has so many thematic connections to other films. Hey, speaking of zombies, when I teach high school students in October, one thing I actually do is give a lesson on how zombies have changed over time. I'm not going to do that today, but the short version is that zombies were really born out of the idea that people weren't always good at telling when someone was alive or dead. 
that's the danger of being buried alive, right? That maybe you're in a coma and everyone around doesn't have modern medical training, so they just go ahead and bury you. Heck, the ending of Romeo and Juliet is based around this idea that people just used to be lousy at actually being sure when someone is dead. In some African and Haitian cultures, when a person is right on the precipice, right on the edge between being alive and dead, there's the belief that a witch or a wizard could command them to stay in the world of the living. The sick person stays alive by the magician's force of will, making them a zombie, just barely thinking and barely alive. This also makes the witch or wizard the zombie's master, and then standard zombie stories become about how the magician will command the zombie to attack other people to get revenge on anyone the magician wants. That's the kind of zombies we're working with in Ghostbreakers. If you want to see how they changed into undead ghouls we have today, read the story Herbert West, Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft, the novel I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, or its first movie, The Last Man on Earth from 1964, and finally George Romero's movie Night of the Living Dead. You'll have fun with any of those too, but they're also the important works that create the modern zombie. What, did I just go off topic? Huh, first time for everything. Back to the plot. There's a good scene here on the ship. In private, Parada warns Larry that Mary... Ugh, it's so annoying saying Larry and Mary. Anyway, Mary should stay away from Castle Maldito. Larry keeps on cracking wise, but he cleverly actually turns his jokes into threats. He says he's not brave, in fact he's got rabbit's blood in him. But if he spots a ghost in the castle, he'd shoot the ghost, and wouldn't that be foolish, firing a gun at a ghost. I love that. That's a clever little threat he gives to Parada. Mary and Montgomery go to Havana that night. Larry was invited too, but he disappeared. Things are starting to come together now. It looks like Medeiros, the man killed back in New York, is back from the dead. But nope, it turns out to be his twin brother, played by the same actor, of course, who has come to demand Mary explain why his brother was killed. When people stop hassling her, Mary runs off to Black Island, and cut to Black Island, where sure enough the reason Larry did not join the dinner date was because he and Alex took a boat out there. Alex and Larry dock by an old spooky house. Larry announces, Lafayette, we are here! He's quoting American Colonel Charles Stanton, which, okay, let's explain this. During the American Revolution, the Marquis de Lafayette sailed from France to the States to help fight, and he became good friends with George Washington. He became a major general in America, and was probably the most famous example of France's support for the Americans' cause, even though he really started out as a private citizen, and wasn't really representing his country in any capacity, but still. He died of old age back at his home in Paris in 1834, but all of America went into mourning for him. He was seen as that much of a hero to the American Revolution. So cut to July 4th, Independence Day, in 1917, and during the First World War. American Colonel Charles Stanton was on staff with General Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Forces. Pershing and Stanton visited the grave of Lafayette, Lafayette being the greatest French hero to the Americans, remember. Stanton gave a speech about how America is going to help France win the war, their flags share the same colors, and how they'll offer up the same blood as the French, and his speech ends with, Lafayette, we are here. The idea being that America is going to return the favor to Lafayette for him having fought bravely for America. So there you go, Larry lands on the island and says, Lafayette, we are here! The idea being that they're here to fight bravely for... Mary, I guess? But we're not done with jokes. After that line, we hear a frog croaking. Alex says, Lafayette's here too. Ouch, come on guys, comparing French people to frogs. 
The references keep on coming. Alex is slow to get out of the boat, and Larry says, Come on, Seabiscuit. The irony is that Seabiscuit was a very fast horse, and here Larry is telling Alex to get a move on. There's probably the extra layer to the joke that because they're getting out of a boat that's in the sea. Seabiscuit was recent news at the time, too, running his most famous race against the Triple Crown winner War Admiral in 1938. Seabiscuit was never a Triple Crown winner himself. There are at least two people living in the little house on the island. One is an old lady, and the other is her zombie son. We meet the woman who asks, What are you doing here? Larry asks if he can sell her a subscription to Weird Stories magazine. The joke, of course, is that she looks weird and scary, and that she might be interested in a sci-fi and horror magazine. There was no Weird Stories, but what they're really doing is making a bit of a reference to Weird Tales, which was one of the most famous science fiction and horror magazines at the time. It had authors like Robert E. Howard and his Conan stories, Clark Ashton Smith, and H.P. Lovecraft who, oddly enough, would have an influence on some of the content in Ghostbusters years later. Oh, the joke. Larry also says if he sells her enough subscriptions, he'll get to go to Vassar College, so just the idea that he's play-acting a much younger man. We should talk about the two actors here. The old woman is Virginia Brissick, a white woman who has darkened herself up for this role. She's been in all sorts of stuff, but you might know her best in her final film role as the grandma in Rebel Without a Cause. Even more interesting is Noble Johnson playing the woman's zombified son. Johnson was a black man who played lots of different ethnicities, including a prince in the original silent version of Thief of Baghdad, in the original Mummy, and as the chief in King Kong. But he was also a movie producer and founded the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, which created films starring black actors that had positive messages. He was also six foot two, so yeah, he played imposing guards a lot, or monster types like this zombie. So we've met this woman, her zombie son. Larry calls the woman Aunt Dinah, which... Whew, there's a reference. Dinah is in the book of Genesis, and is the only daughter of Jacob. To really shorten her story, she was used as a bargaining chip between her family and the neighboring people who weren't Israelites. So, there's a certain interpretation, a line that you can draw between the biblical Dinah and women held in slavery. We'll get back to this in a moment. But just before that, there's another example of a Dinah. Real piece of crap Judge Stephen Jacob lived in Vermont, a state that prided itself on being one of the first American states to ban slavery. Well, Judge Stephen Jacob still had a slave named Dinah. She was definitely named after the biblical Dinah, but we don't know today if she was named with the slavery interpretation of the story in mind, as in she was cruelly given the name as a slave because she was born a slave or what. Okay, the point. This Dinah grew sick, and this piece of crap judge didn't take care of her. The town of Windsor, Vermont provided care for Dinah, so hey, at least some people back in the day were decent. In 1801, the town of Windsor sued Stephen Jacob to pay for Dinah's care, even proving he had bought her as a slave. Jacob countered that since slavery was illegal in Vermont, she was therefore never a slave, and he was therefore not responsible for her care. And Jacob won based on that argument. But it became a famous example of a Yankee being a slave owner, and Dinah became a famous example of a former slave. Where does this lead? One of these two reasons, or perhaps both of them, meant that during the American Civil War, the name Dinah came to symbolize black women slaves and freed slaves. Both black and white abolitionists would invoke the name of Dinah, and there are records from freed slaves how Union soldiers would call all the women Dinah, telling them that they're free. And there you go, this all leads to 1940, and Bob Hope calls a woman Aunt Dinah because he doesn't know her name. 
that's always rather rude, but it was coming from a historic place of people knowing that slavery was evil, I guess? I'll leave it there. I'm not here to make a value judgment on this, I guess. But, uh, more of this stuff. This is where Willie Best as Alex really plays up being frightened, being a stock minstrel character, all scared and wide-eyed approaching the castle. I like the views of the castle. It's not even a model. You can tell it's obviously a painted backdrop. The movie's doing its best to make it look like it's more off in the distance, when really if the actors would walk two or three meters away, they'll knock into the backdrop. Things get better when they get up close to a physical set of its entrance, though. Ha, <laughs> but I like this too. There are bats on strings. Very classic. Also, you know how all jungles in movies sound the same? You hear a kookaburra here, even though kookaburras live in New Guinea and Australia. You hear that bird laughing in a movie, remember that you should only hear it set in Australia or New Guinea. Larry and Alex enter the castle, and this is the one good set of the movie. It's big and has a grand staircase. It's a nice set. There's also a big painting of an ancestor of Mary's, and sure enough the painting looks exactly like Mary Carter. Larry says, What a hot Spanish dish you must have been. Wish me luck, darling. Huh. Then Larry has the dumb idea of splitting up from Alex. There's no real reason to do this. While Alex is downstairs, a ghost pops out of a chest. It's a man in an old aristocratic outfit. It's actually a pretty decent effect, with some swirling lights at first, before the ghost slowly wakes up from his nap. Or death. They probably did it through double exposure, just filming the location, then filming the actor rising from the dead over the exact same film, superimposing him over it to make it look transparent. I like it how the ghost gets up, walks for a little bit with spooky music, then immediately comes back and lies down again. I get it that it's a ghost and can do anything it wants, but if you're only going to get up for like 30 seconds and not use a toilet, why even bother? I would have just stayed in bed. Alex and Larry both see the ghost, and Larry investigates the chest and finds a naked skeleton inside. I point out that it's naked just because there are good bedsheets and clothes still around the castle. This means that someone placed the dead body into that chest while it was nude. Honestly, what it really means is that nobody in the production considered to clothe the prop skeleton. Also, I just like it that there's this skeleton in a big chest. Not in a coffin, not hidden away behind a secret wall or anything, just hanging out in the middle of the castle. I also want to stop for a moment. This is me grasping at straws a little bit, but apart from Larry calling himself a ghostbreaker, joking around like it's a real job, this is the scene that's most like anything in Ghostbusters. Larry sees the ghost, smirks and says, Now wait a minute, you can't do that to me, I know better. It's his joke that he was expecting some bad guy to be waiting in the castle with a gun, but now seeing an actual ghost flips his expectations and he finds it funny. He gets over to the chest, looks all around it for a trapdoor or something, and gives it a kick. It's like he's checking it to see if it's a magic trick or something. Ugh. Then we get Alex hiding in a clock, doing some minstrel Freddy Cat stuff. <laughs> but I do like the line leaving this scene. A door opens and creaks. Larry grabs his gun and says, Come on, let's find out what that is and oil it. Larry and Alex explore the castle and find a family crypt. Hey, do you bury your dead relatives in your basement? What, you don't? Huh. I guess you're weird. Larry and Alex find Maria Isabella Sebastian, Mary's ancestor in the portrait. They laid the woman to rest in a glass coffin. That's also weird. Huh, she's like Snow White here. There's another good joke here. Alex asks, Is that a mummy? Larry says, Yeah. 
it's Miss Carter's great-great-grandmummy. I didn't mean it. Honest. Oh, and here's the biggest mistake of the movie. So big that the movie's Wikipedia page even mentions it. They find another glass coffin. What's up with these glass coffins? Anyway, they find another one marked as Don Santiago. Larry says, that's the gentleman we met out in the hall. Okay, but just a few minutes ago, Larry checked the chest where the ghost came from, and there was a skeleton inside of it. Nobody was really paying attention making this film, and they've given this ghost Santiago two bodies, one in the chest and one in this glass coffin. Huh, what a lucky ghost, having two dead bodies to return to. See, the rich really are disgusting. They're not satisfied with just one body, they need two bodies to haunt after they die. In all seriousness, this two bodies business can actually be explained away. Maybe Larry is mistaken, and the ghost isn't of Don Santiago. Maybe it's some other relative. It still doesn't explain why there's a skeleton just hanging out in a chest upstairs, but hey. Outside the castle, Mary proves she's the bravest person in this movie by having a guide in a boat get her close, then she dives into the water and swims to shore. She's in a swimsuit and swimming cap, which is amusing to see, and she has a change of clothes in a bag. But the old lady spots her and wakes up the zombie. Now here's something. I wonder why she wakes up her zombie now and not for Larry and Alex's arrival. Mary goes to the castle and pokes around, and the zombie comes after her. She runs away, but part of her outfit gets torn. Funny how that would happen. She gets to the relative safety of a bedroom, but someone is spying on her from a secret panel. Standard haunted house stuff. My understanding is the previous Hope Goddard movie, Cat and the Canary, had a lot of this kind of stuff, so they're repeating that here. Larry and Alex have some banter back and forth exploring, and they stupidly stop next to a suit of armor. And here's the old gag of the suit of armor coming to life and trying to whack them. This is the kind of stuff that Scooby-Doo cartoons would have. In fact, from the haunted castle onwards, I'm starting to realize this movie is more of an inspiration to Scooby-Doo than it is to Ghostbusters. There's a spooky location, heroes acting afraid of ghosts and monsters, but the real threat is some person who's trying to scare the heroes away. Seriously, it's Ghost Breakers and other movies like it that later get you the Scooby-Doo formula. But yes, the armor comes to life and they all wrestle. Alex shouts, It's the zombie! Larry says, It ain't baby Snooks! Okay, there's a reference I can talk about, but I'll try to keep it short. Yeah, right, like I ever keep things short. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in 1904, there was a comic strip by George McManus called The Newlyweds. Part of the gag of The Newlyweds is that you never learn the characters' names. They're always lovely and dearest, and then they had a boy they called Snookums, which is a nonsense cutesy word that McManus invented. The baby ended up being the breakout character, and the comic strip went through a lot of different names. In the 1930s, the baby, or really a toddler character, started appearing on a radio played by a woman, and then for the radio they just went ahead and made baby Snookums a girl. Snookums, or Snooks, appeared on a bunch of different radio shows before getting her own program in the 40s. So there, if you ever hear someone use the cutesy word snookums or snooks, it's a reference to this old comic strip and radio character where the point is people used to use cute pet names. Oh, and of course to tie it back into Ghostbusters, there's a real Ghostbusters episode called Baby Spookums, the one with the baby pink ghost. Egon says that his mom nicknamed him Baby Spookums, and so then he gives the name to the pink ghost. See, this all comes back around. The zombie is all set to bash Larry's face in when he sees... Another g -g 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 ghost? No, it's Mary Carter, who's wearing the same dress as her ancestor in the portrait. This vision stuns the zombie long enough for Alex and Larry to overpower him and lock him in a closet. Honestly, there was no reason for Mary to put on this elaborate old dress. I guess she had some idea that it would come in handy in surprising 
the zombie, I guess? Whatever, there's no real accounting for this, so we better just move on. Oh, actually, there is probably a reason for this, just not in the plot. At the same time The Ghostbreakers was being filmed, Alfred Hitchcock was directing his first Hollywood film, Rebecca. In Rebecca, a major plot point towards the end is that the heroine wears a custom dress to match a large portrait in the mansion, basically doing the same thing as Mary Carter here, and in both cases the women sort of become living ghosts. I mean, people around them get disturbed because it's like a dead person coming back. I don't think this is just a coincidence. The novel Rebecca was a huge recent bestseller, selling millions of copies, and the heroine wearing the dress seen in a portrait is the most iconic part. Producers of the Ghostbreakers knew that scene was going to be in the movie version of Rebecca coming out in 1940, so here's just a blatant copy that same year. <laughs> it's like DreamWorks copying whatever Pixar is up to. See, movie studios ripping each other off is way older than you think. So the zombie is locked up in a closet. Mary has Larry show her the crypt, where they find a riddle on a wall that mentions finding a key to a treasure. Can you imagine someone bothering to put a treasure hunt in a riddle in your resting place? Oh, the eccentric rich. Oh hey, and it's conveniently in English instead of Spanish. Upstairs, a young, handsome Montgomery shows up to the castle and meets Alex. Back in the crypt, it looks like a body in a casket is coming to life. Is it a vampire? Well, no, it's actually Parada. And here's another Scooby-Doo staple. Turns out that him being sinister since the start of the movie, offering to purchase the castle from Mary and giving her dire warnings, well, it turns out that he might have been a swell guy the entire time who never meant her any harm. Someone stabbed him when he came to the castle and was suspiciously spying on Mary, and the assailant stuffed Parada in the coffin. Okay, I guess murder isn't very Scooby-Doo, but the idea that the suspicious man is really innocent and the only nice guy left is going to be evil, that sure is Scooby-Doo. I guess I just spoiled the ending now, but we only have one suspect left anyway. Of course, Parada lives long enough to give cryptic messages about the treasure, but can't spare a breath to answer the question of who stabbed him. Well, Parada kicks the bucket, and Mary figures out that the key to the treasure are keys on an organ in the crypt. She can figure it out by looking at markings on a wall. It's very video game logic, very Legend of Zelda. The notes open a door in the crypt leading even further down. Larry and Mary go down to a lower level and discover a small mining operation. Then suddenly, dun dun dun, the twin brother, Madero, shows up with a gun. He looks like he's about to threaten the two, but instead he tries to warn them. Then bang, the twin is shot in the arm. Out from the door pops Montgomery, dun dun dun. Yes, it really is Scooby-Doo logic. Nice guy Montgomery has discovered silver under the castle, and he killed Parada before Parada could warn Mary about anything. All this logic, it makes enough sense, but the movie isn't really concerned about who knew what when. Like, did Parada know Montgomery was evil throughout the movie? That seems to be implied, but then it doesn't make sense why Parada wouldn't just explain that to Mary from the start. And then there's the twin brothers, and Montgomery even asks the twin how he knew about the silver or Montgomery's plot, and the twin just says, hey, does that matter right now? It's funny that the movie is even self-aware enough to know it's not explaining everything, but just rushes past this. It looks like curtains for Mary, Larry, and Medeiros, when suddenly there's a bong sound and two trapdoors open. One is actually above Montgomery, and the other is a trapdoor underneath Montgomery that sends him to a watery grave. Ah, splash. There's actually no reason for the trapdoor above, except it lets Alex poke his head through and he says, Did I press the wrong button? 
I think we're supposed to assume he was playing around on the organ in the crypt, but that's not really made clear. In any case, deus ex machina, the machina being the organ. Montgomery fell to his death. Mary Carter now owns a castle with a fortune in silver, and all the people still alive head off in a motorboat. The last gag is standard stuff too, and I think this has come up in cartoons. Larry and Mary ask, So hey, how did the bad guy imitate a ghost so well? And Madero says, That was the real ghost. Ooh, spooky. Then this is stupid. Larry is very presumptuous and proposes to Mary by saying they'll have something to discuss for their honeymoon. She seems happy about this, but girl, you just became a millionaire with a private island and you've known this guy for a couple days. You don't have to settle for Bob Hope just now if you don't want to. But this being a movie, she's all smiles and they kiss. You can tell this movie started out as a play. First, I can tell the voodoo and zombie content are just for this movie, as is Larry being a radio announcer. Hey, speaking of that, the whole plot with Frenchie Duval, plus the New York police looking for Larry, is left unresolved. I guess the twin brother Medeiros could tell the cops that he thinks Larry is innocent, but it's not like he could really prove it. Whatever. Oh geez, that brings me to more plot holes. So nothing changes the fact that Parada still killed the one brother back in New York. The end of the movie makes a show of Prada actually being a nice guy, that he really was trying to just warn Mary Carter, but him killing the brother back in New York kind of contradicts this idea. Honestly, the movie only makes a little bit more sense if Prada was evil the whole time, and at the end he's just lying to Mary and says he was trying to warn her the entire time. Oh, and my final nitpick, how actually does the zombie and his mom factor into this plot? Are they just like Jason Voorhees and want to kill people who come to their neck of the woods? Maybe, but then why didn't the lady sick the zombie on Larry and Alex as soon as they arrived? So, was it really that Montgomery knew them, and he told them to attack Mary Carter? Yeah, I'm doing the thing I'm always doing. The movie just has things happening, like multiple bodies, one being a naked skeleton, there's dangling threads with mob bosses, there's a zombie, and a woman wearing dead people's clothing, and all for no real reason other than it hopefully makes for some fun scenes, not because it'll make for a story that makes sense. I was saying that you can tell this began life as a play. They kind of hide this fact with multiple sets, but you can tell you only need three, maybe even as little as two sets. You need a room for Mary Carter to take legal ownership of the island, and for Parada to give his dire warnings about ghosts and all that, and for some hijinks with Larry. Then if you want, you can have the scenes on the ship, but even all that action could actually be shifted to a single castle set, and have the characters run around Scooby-Doo style, running away from the ghost or monsters until they find the castle's secret. Oh, the final secret, or fact. This all takes place in 1940. If Mary and Larry did marry, ugh, Mary and Larry marry, <clears throat> they wed, if they decided to live in Cuba, they'd be in trouble in the 1950s for the Cuban Revolution. Mary is definitely going to lose that island, and she's only going to keep some of her fortune if she's transferred some of it to the states. So that's their future. So the $64,000 question, and that's an old enough reference. The question is, is the Ghostbreakers worth watching? I shall consult this Ouija board I keep by my computer. Mm -hmm. Oh, spirits. Spirits like... Crystal Head Vodka. Is the Ghostbreakers worth recommending to people? I feel it. I feel it moving. Manufactured by Milton Bradley. No, wait. The moon and a big old no. Thanks a lot. That was a big help, spirits. So the point. 
The Ghostbreakers is not a fantastic movie. It's okay at best. I'd only recommend it if you're like me and want to really explore some of the ghost-chasing movies that brings you to Ghostbusters in 84. In a way, that's kind of the tradition. You know how old serials inspired George Lucas to make Star Wars and Indiana Jones? There's less of a connection here, but it's worth watching if you want to see a bit of a line between Ghostbreakers and Ghostbusters. The difference being that in Ghostbusters, like Star Wars and Indy, they get to use better special effects, but also the focus actually becomes honestly on stopping ghosts, while here in 1940, the characters mostly know what's up and it's really a story about stopping a human villain, and the supernatural is really just window dressing and a gag at the end. Speaking of which, this is the last time I'll mention this, but actually in structure this movie shares more in common with Scooby-Doo than Ghostbusters. There's a castle and a fortune, and a villain is trying to scare the heroes off. This is also true of The Cat and the Canary, and a little bit in Bob Hope and Paulette Goddard's last film together, Nothing But the Truth. Nothing But the Truth has guys trying to muck up someone getting a fortune again, but it otherwise moves away from killers, ghosts, and zombies, and is all about Bob Hope needing to tell the truth for 24 hours. Yes, it's a non-magical version of Jim Carrey's movie Liar Liar. And I don't think there's anything else for me to discuss with this. Check out Ghostbreakers only if you're absolutely curious. Every so often something pretty racist pops up, which is not good. There's witty dialogue every so often. It kind of reminds me of Peter Venkman, of saying something clever and flippant in the face of something weird and scary. But none of the dialogue is quite enough to make me really laugh. Just chuckle at best. So like I said, this movie is just okay. Hope you had a good Halloween, folks. Hope you survive the night to All Saints Day, too. I'm the disembodied voice of Ross May, and if a Ouija board doesn't work, you can reach me on Twitter at RossMayWriter, or go to RossMayWriter.com to find my email there. Now I must return to the grave. So let's split up. We can do more damage that way. <laughs>